The world we live in is an amazing one, full of passion, wonderment, and of course, fine wine. This is the story of one man's journey to fully understand and appreciate that world. So kick the tires and light the fires. It's time to ride between the wines. It's Burgundian in style. Just a whisper of cherry. Very nice legs. This is so perfectly balanced. Such an old world style. Is this laced with tobacco? A total fruit bomb. I say, say, Ponzi! <laughs> Howdy, riders. Welcome back to Ride Between the Wines. This is your host, Mike Wine Guy. On this episode, we're speaking with Mandy Silver, one of my favorite friends from both Firesteed Winery in Willamette Valley, Oregon, but as well as Vintage Wine Estates. And a little later in the episode, we'll speak with Laurel Jeffrey from Gervais and Vine as she gives us our definition of the week. So buckle up and let's ride. All right, let me turn my blinker off for a second. All right, so welcome back to Ride Between the Wines. This is Mandy Silver. I don't know if I told you this yet, Mandy, um, but I've only, I actually haven't put any videos on yet, so everything's yes. been audio up to this point. So you will be one of my first three or four video ones. I've taped a couple video ones, but I haven't actually put them anywhere just yet. That's my January 2020. Um, but thank you for being on the podcast. Very You're welcome. You. I feel like um, a, a day-long celebrity. I'm thrilled to be part of the very first filming. You absolutely are. Um, so, uh, well, so Mandy works with Vintage Wine Estates. Yes. Um, but before, who represents Firesteed? But before you're with Vintage Wine Estates, you're specifically with Firesteed. So, um, whenever I have somebody on the the show, obviously I want to talk about what they do and everything. But I think that would be an awesome way to start, just to tell me about Firesteed. People at home, if you haven't had Firesteed before, it's a uh, Willamette Valley um, Oregon winery, um, and they make delicious juice. And it's actually for Oregon, very inexpensive juice. I don't know how that's accomplished but you can talk about that too but, but tell me tell me a little bit about that let's start with that yes so Fireseed was actually my second foray into Willamette Valley winery representation and Fireseed was as you mentioned an affordable winery specifically because that was Howard Rossbach's endeavors he wanted to be able to do um, the oxymoronic concept of affordable Oregon um, that before he started in the early 90s was not really a focus with Oregon or Willamette Valley winemaking. And as there are in many different series of vintages, there was a glut of fruit and Howard was able to take advantage of that and be able to acquire beautiful fruit. I understand it was Shea Vineyard back in the early 90s and make a great 9.99 at the time. Wow, Willamette <laughs> Valley Pinot Noir. Um, he though was an importer of Northwest products and he knew that there was a notable lack of affordability in Oregon so he waited till the appropriate timing. He was able to do things affordably by looking at a site that made wine, get a great winemaker, Brian Croft, who stayed with him throughout his entirety of Firesteed's existence and through now. He's still um, assisting with winemaking and the head of winemaking for Firesteed okay. in Recreal, Oregon. And he was able to produce a Pinot Noir, which now will um, excel 60,000 cases in size in today's vintage production. But back in the day, it was a bit smaller in size. Um, he was able to additionally produce Pinot Gris. And over time, um, after contracts had all over many years existed and expired, Howard was able to invest in land. And there was an estate 
property where the winery was located with about 90 acres, as well as erratic oaks where the sourcing of Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Riesling to this day can take place to produce Firesteed Cellars wines. And uh, how much of everything non-Pinot Noir are they making? Uh, there's about 8,000 cases of Pinot Gris and the Riesling typically is under 1,000 cases. We've had one instance where it was a bit more than that, but um, pretty boutique in production. By comparison, because we're affordable Oregon uh -huh. and nowadays everything is Willamette Valley, um, which is my favorite conversation in a wine dinner to teach people to pronounce the word Willamette properly. <laughs> Uh, but there was a focus to make wine in a great traditional concept, traditional winemaking with 100% Pinot Noir um, and Pinot Gris. Mm -hmm. The Riesling is the only thing that has a little bit um, of Gewürztraminer, which comes off the property within it. Uh, but everything is done in an affordable fashion, but it's all nowadays coming from the valley and a lot of it off the parcel at Erratic Oaks exclusively. Is the, is the Riesling off dry? Nowadays it is. Um, historically it had a dry Alsatian specific focus where it was not particularly sweet at all but with the warmer weather mm -hmm. that has ensued starting in the 2014 vintage the wine started to have a notable off dry component. Um, in fact I would traditionally taste it first when I did a sales meeting and I was taken aback in the middle of Manhattan at a sales meeting when I tasted it. My eyes probably almost popped <laughs> out of my face like an hour eyes old commercial. And I realized that it was off dry and I called the winemaker later and felt like I had been betrayed. I was like, what is going on here? Because um, he hadn't quite told me that the style was very, very different. How funny would it have been if you went through, if you didn't taste it and you just went through the whole time telling everybody about this perfect dry Riesling. I did. Like, this girl has no idea what she's talking about. I did. About. In fact, that's what I said to the sales team. And there were some odd faces. And then I took a sip of my own glass after I spoke and I was like, wow, I'm, you know, I stand corrected. This is an off dry <laughs> style um, and I think that the marketplace really does appreciate especially in America the off-dry style it's also perfect with all sorts of cuisines um, and there's an ability for folks to understand Riesling and its longevity seeing the sweetness and the acidity and the fact that that's why a wine can cellar for so long now speaking of non-Pinot Noir varietals obviously Willamette's Pinot Noir um, but uh, what about Chardonnay? Is that something that you guys are doing at all? Is it Howard produced a wonderful Chardonnay called Citation, which he still sells nowadays, and it is probably the best Oregon Chardonnay I've ever had. Um, it is off the same parcel at Erratic Oaks. It is absolutely delicious. It's Dijon clone. Um, it is tiny production, and it's amazing. But Fireseed nowadays um, has focused specifically on the three varietals that mm -hmm. it was known for for national sales um, rather than items that um, were necessarily focused on club production. So it's Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Riesling. Awesome. Well, uh, what else do you have in kind of go to, to vintage a little bit? Um, also, there's... So I'll have to figure it out so we can tell a story later, but there's a story that you told me um, about you at some sort of a national Pinot thing in Oregon and you were just left and right dropping the names of people and I was just like 
my jaw dropped. He's just like, yes, I mean, David Adelstein, we're just hanging out or whatever, and all these different... Oregon uh, Pinot Camp. Is it Pinot Camp you were telling me about? Um, they've kind of been a, a lot of different circumstances, yeah. <laughs> um, and everyone's so friendly that you see famous people that are interested in speaking to those who work on a um, regional level or uh -huh. a national level like myself, um, or were in that capacity with Firesteed. Um, like they could be your best friend. So it's a it's a great community. But uh, Pinot Camp is amazing. I was able to um, be part of the counseling aspect of that for two different years. And you meet people that have different styles and uh, focuses when it comes to their terroir and what they're doing that can be constructive and also perfect for the American marketplace. Uh -huh. um, they made a name for themselves so that people would ask for Oregon and Willamette Valley Pinot Noir by name. They demand it for by the glass. It wasn't just, oh, I'll have a Pinot Noir, but I will have an Oregon or Willamette Pinot Noir uh -huh. if you have it by the glass. And that really was not the case for a very long time. So I think in the last 10 years that has changed. And when I see restaurants, they're excited that I have Willamette Valley Pinot Noir in a by the glass range for them to right. buy. Um, but I think you may have also overheard my story of one of my famous Mandy embarrassing moments. Um, I would usually, love to hear this. Usually my um, month is not complete without something <laughs> that I turn 50 shades of red within. Um, and this would be specific to a meeting with one of my favorite distributors in Northern Virginia um, by the name of Select. And um, I marched up to the front to talk about our new vintages and to taste our 2012 Riesling specifically, which we had an elongated vintage, so it lasted for a while in the marketplace and it was completely dry. Um, so I went through my spiel about the Willamette Valley and the vintage changes and what was happening with estate fruit and how all the ownership and the property would be dedicated to Willamette Valley as we move from Oregon to Willamette on all the labels. And then I had my 2012 um, award-winning Riesling. So I proclaimed its authenticity as an Alsatian true style, that it was crisp and acidic and dry and delicious <laughs> and it could you know, combat the most um, specific history of an Alsatian wine out there in the marketplace. And little did I know that other suppliers that would be speaking after me were right there in the room. And there happened to be Jean Trimbach in the room. <laughs> of all people. And Sean, in his wonderfully friendly accent, uh -huh. stood up after my presentation ended and said, eh, not bad for domestic Riesling. My family has only been making Riesling for uh, a couple, 400 years. But this is quite good, especially for Oregon. So I was in shock. And it was hilarious, and I will remember it as a fond sales meeting presentation for the rest of my career. Oh, that's funny. He's such a he's got such a funny, and dry had, personality too. Like yeah, I, and the sales team had a big um, song that they sang. Um, trim, so you, you, trim. See, I don't even know it, but you do. It's trim, bot, trim, bot. Bring back my trim box to me. It's, it's <laughs> to my Bonnie lies over the ocean. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. He's a funny guy. Um, but yeah, that's what a, what a what a funny person to be talking it, about your amazing Alsatian style yes. Oregon Riesling right in front of. Us. Oh, I think whoever was looking down on me had a good laugh that day, <laughs> um, and it'll be forever emblazoned as the um, the Mandy Silver story for that distributor. Well, 
I love that. I think that's a great story. Yeah. Um, so, well, we're about to pull over to the account, so we're going to pop back in the car in a few minutes. But don't go nowhere. All right. We are back in the car. Um, so, so people at home listening, so I haven't had anybody on for video ones yet, but if you go and listen to the audios, um, which is Spotify or wherever else you listen to this stuff, uh, Mandy's company, Vintage Wine and Estates, has had several different guests uh, in my first season, which are Sean Roney from uh, Winemaker Sabotage. Uh, I've had Patricio Guggenheim, owner of Guggenheim um, in South America, and had one more. Danny Gordon. Oh, Danny Gordon. My very first podcast is Danny Gordon. It's called You Had Me at Merlot, a winemaker for Tamarack in Washington. So we won't talk about any of those, um, but I do want to talk about uh, maybe a couple other wineries that you represent. Absolutely. And, and I'll want to talk about how you come up with these crafty names for your segments. Better question, what should I call yours? We'll have to discuss that on our <laughs> next hiatus. Um, but yeah, um, I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm i going to run out of punny titles ingenious, very soon. Ingenious, though. Ingenious. Stop. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's talk about a couple of other wineries um, that you guys represent. I know a couple that I want to hear you talk about. Are there any that I haven't mentioned, you know, outside of the ones that I've mentioned that you're super passionate about or love, or do you love them all? Um, well, being a wine geek, I enjoy the ones that have interesting varietals. I enjoy the ones that have value quality standpoints, which are wonderful for sales aspect in the market. That's always fun to get behind. I can Absolutely. explode with passion over, hey, I like this because this, but it's also delicious. It's the right quality. It goes with food. Everything's perfectly balanced. All those good things. So we're pretty proud of all the wineries. Um, the idea is to expand throughout California to show all of the winemaking regions, and that's been a recent um, focus for acquisition for Vintage Wine Estates and for us to continue expansion in the Pacific Northwest. That happened a bit with Tamarack Cellars as well, too. Right. So um, I'm happy to talk about any of our wineries and um, exciting points of interest and places that you can visit and the styles of the wines and the quality. Well, then, great. Well, then, well, first thing you said was interesting varietals. So you probably saw my, my eyes perk up, but let's talk about Coupe. Yes. So, uh, yeah, Coupe is um, the new, one of the newest uh, acquisitions for y'all. Absolutely. So the history of Coupe um, was tied with many of the historic winemakers that were known as the Rhone Rangers. They were the first to plant Rhone varietals in California soil and to show the complexity of the wine that can be developed from a cool climate aspect. So essentially, if you have a warmer climate and a span of cooler weather, especially at nighttime, to preserve the acidity and to develop the flavors within these more delicate grape varietals, you can produce a wine that's tasty and has longevity. And therefore, Bob Lindquist was able to plant grape varietals that were Rhone historic, wonderful cellars, as well as tasty little morsels that came from esteemed vineyards like Biennacito. Um, Roussan and Marsan, admittedly, have not been my favorite grapes or wines to taste. Um, my nose wrinkles when I think of a petrol attribute when it comes to whites and the fact that mm, I'm not sure that either my nose or my palate really enjoyed that experience and what kind of food could I potentially hide it with? Well, that's not really <laughs> what you want to do when it comes to wine and food pairing. So when I had the pleasant surprise of tasting 
Bob Lindquist releases when we took over Coupe Winery, the Marsana Roussan were some of my favorites. You have small production wine um, that showcase the, um, the style, the body, um, all of the focus that you'd get from these grapes, from the skin contact, um, from the fact that you could do a blend, specific vineyard sourcing, and everything was done in a very small um, square acreage of land to produce a consistent style and weather pattern throughout the years. So uh, the Roussan and Marsan are amazing. And then you have, of course, the Focal Syrah, um, which is a Central Coast wine. This is also a blend, but shows the fact that you don't have to overdo the peppery elements um, or the earthy, leathery overtones and really get a beautiful wine that'll age over time. And it's great with all of the things that we'd enjoy in the winter for cuisine. Um, and then you have a Grenache, which is this bouquet and smack of raspberry and rhubarb in the glass that go particularly well with the pork tenderloins and all of the great foods that you'd have as a comfort element. It has great acidity, good berry fruit, and just wonderful to taste if you're just having a glass on the porch. So Coupe, um, one of our best acquisitions and one of the wines that has the best value quality ratio. So most of these wines for restaurants, they can serve either by the glass or on an affordable by the bottle element. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I, I really, so I actually showed off um, the Grenache and the Marsan recently. Last, recently. It was last week at a tasting, and um, the, the number of people who hadn't actually had either of those varietals, whether French or American, um, it's very small, and they loved them. Especially the, the Marsan did extremely well. Like, it's, it's very, very dry, and it's got a nose that is unlike most of, of what I show there and yeah yeah I'm super excited for y'all I, I like the coupe and the name coupe means in Chumash the Indian native language okay um it was the poppy which is grown and you can see if you drive through the area um that is the most commonly planted flower and that poppy itself um Bob found some clip art if you are as old as I am and reference the uh, clip art concept uh -huh. those were great pictorials of things that you could use for graphics when you were making all sorts of marketing um, pieces and it was free and it sort of looked like a wine glass so he um, was able to design this clip art of the Chumash Poppy that looked almost like a wine glass and it became the center point and the logo on the label as well as on the capsule of the package. A lot of the wines from Coupe that are the um, the first tier are done in Stelvin enclosure, so you can still see the poppy on the top of the capsule. Right. And then the um, cork finish wines, you can see it on the front label as well. Well, yeah, it's a very cool logo, so that's where it comes from. Um, uh, another winery. Uh, let's let's move. Um, how about Swanson? Because I love the Swanson story. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's talk about. It. And also, I love the wine. So. Absolutely. So. Um, I always mention this to folks that um, are a captive audience, but as a youngster, my parents um, would every once in a while have a date and they would hire a babysitter to come and take care of us for the night. And I would smell dinner in the oven and that dinner normally consisted of a frozen dinner. And there was a lot of infighting that happened um, over the brownie that may be um, available in that great Swanson TV dinner. Uh, but the, the history of the family having the bright idea of cooking their extra turkeys on a turkey farm 
and making them into a phenomena that the grocery industry took by storm. These frozen meals so that people could have a quick, easy tasting meal um, made a fortune for the family. And Clark Swanson was the benefactor. He was able to travel out to California. Um, he was chummy with um, Andre Chelichev, the wine whisperer, who advised him when he was looking at property that this particular land in Oakville, although all the surrounding um, areas were planted to mostly Cabernet, he could plant Merlot and he had perfect Pomerol right bank soil. So this would produce an exquisite selection and I couldn't agree more. So this is dubbed Swanson Merlot, the cab drinkers Merlot for good reason. Um, it has the most enticing aroma. It smells like you visited Napa Valley when you smell that glass and you have this ripe fruit, dark black and blue fruit. There's usually a dab of Cab and Petit Verdot in it. And it is the wine where I can surprise the most people that have shunned, all of you out there, who have shunned Merlot, stop doing it. This is the answer to your prayers for a wonderfully well-priced, exquisite selection. 4,000 cases, we just got 91 points in our Swanson 17 Merlot drink up. Which is an amazing segue to just one other winery that we might have time for before we get here, who also makes an amazing Merlot, which is Clopagas. Yes, Clopagas, the most mispronounced winery within I mean, close our... Pagasse, my bad. Yes, the, the Italian version of the wine name. Um, but Clopagas has one of the most wonderful stories that we have in vintage wine estates. It's also one of our acquisitions that happen purely with the owner wanting to um, remove himself from the fact that he absolutely was enamored with his wife, Mitsuko. And when she passed, he decided to sell the winery, which makes complete sense. But he was a true romantic. So his um, start in the industry was through translation. Um, he eventually was able to meet Mitsuko and they had a love and passion together for art and collection of sculpture and artwork. And his artist series, as well as his renderings that appeared on the labels, um, he had lots of interesting stories regarding those and some that were challenged legally. And these particular wines were showcased and made by some of the most acclaimed winemakers um, within Calistoga and Napa. I believe Andre Celich have actually made wine for a good deal of time at Clopagas as well. And the production centered on the Calistoga location, which was also an art gallery. It was um, developed with a cave system underneath to cellar the wine. And what they showcased right from the properties at Clopagas were the Cabernet in particular and some of the other um, deeper, darker varietals that were grown in Calistoga, whereas south um, in Mitsuko's property in Carneros, you have this wonderful property which was the Valentine's Day gift um, to Mitsuko. So he gave her, um, the story goes, a Tiffany box filled with dirt and of course, um, like any um, female, you may expect to see a bright, shiny diamond like some uh, jewelry piece inside that. So that didn't happen. I'm sure she was a little bit surprised and maybe not in a positive yeah. way. <laughs> and um, he explained, For you, my love, I bought you a vineyard. So 365 acres to represent the amount of days a year he loved her. It was planted to a good deal of Dijon clone Chardonnay as well as to Merlot that you just referenced, mm -hmm. is another excellent one from our portfolio, and Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc 
These are all small production wines and both Swanson and Klopagas are made by Robin Akehurst of Vintage Wine Estates who makes the small, most of the wines are under 4,000 cases mm -hmm. and these wines are exquisitely crafted to showcase the terroir. They have great acidity, they have beautiful tannins when it comes to the reds and they showcase the area and are food friendly. Um, acclaimed with great scores too. The Klopagas on a unabashed award here. 2018 just got 91 <laughs> points from the advocates. So we're very happy about that score. I love how you have all that right yeah. there. Yeah, the, the, I'm in sales. <laughs> well, and also um, she was mentioning about um, the the art museum and the, and the art background of it. If you get a chance to visit the winery, it's awesome. You can walk through. There's obviously there's art and sculptures everywhere. There's a probably a mixture of Greek and Italian uh, ancient myth mythology, Bacchus and all that. and It's very cool. Uh. Jan um, donated when he sold the winery to Vintage Wine Estates. He donated a good deal of the collection and then the winery was redesigned at that point, the tasting room in particular, to UC Davis. So there's a Shrem wing that you can go see the exhibit with a good deal of the artwork. And then a lot of the pieces were so large, they're still on the parcel today. Um, so the tasting room moved to accommodate that and you can still see the history as well as a a very beautiful expression of vintage wine estates. It's dubbed one of the best hospitality wineries in California. Um, and you get a feel like being um, in Euro wine country when you walk through the doors, especially if they hand you a glass of the special rosé. Well, we definitely had the rosé. I mm -hmm. think it was special. Yeah, but that's, that is really, it, Sheila and I went there last year, the year before, and it was gorgeous. Um, okay, so uh, we're probably going to come back for at least one more. Um, we're about to come over here at the lovely 929 um but when we come back i want to hear about the purple cowboy we'll do it giddy up giddy up so welcome back um this is laurel jeffrey she is not only a longtime columbia wine and foodie and a member of the service industry but she is recently uh the proud owner of germain vine uh, which is awesome and kind of relaunched what four months ago something like that yeah october 1st we took over very nice so she's agreed to come and be my next uh, teacher, definition giver. Um, so if you watch the first two episodes of this, we were doing wine structures. So we covered acid, acidity in wine, and we covered tannin. So the next thing I want to talk about is sweetness, because I think sweetness is something a lot of people, I feel like almost everybody who tastes wine goes, ooh, it's sweet, I don't want any of that. And they don't appreciate you know, how sure it gets there, and, and kind of its purpose, other than just being certain. There's, there's a huge stigma attached to sweetness. Um, you know, a lot of times it's, it's the very first wine that you drink in college, like Lewis Farm or like Bartles and James or something like that. And then, and then as your palate matures, then you, you lean toward dry. Um, and so it, it's also very prevalent in uh, less expensive or cheap wines. Oh, nice. um, so, so that's why it sometimes has a, you know had that stigma or bad connotation to it. But um, but sweetness is, is actually. Um, Certainly a necessary part of wine, and definitely desirable, and um, and really, really fun. It's an integral part of, of the whole flavor profile that you get. So let's start with how we get sweetness. Are we just pouring sugar in the wine? Where does the where does the sugar end up? Well, there is a method that called chateauization that they can add sugar to wine. Um, that's that's better looked upon with, with sparkling wines, but it's still wine stuff. It's typically not the practice to do that. Grapes are naturally sweet. Um, there is a natural sugar in, in the fruit that is converted, you know, after the fermentation process into, you know, residual sugar, um, or RS, like we like to call it, and um, the, the percentage of that um, kind of dictates how, 
how sweet the final product is perceived. Okay. And um, so why would why would somebody choose to um, leave however much residual sugar? Why would somebody choose to go more bone dry versus something that's what we think of as Riesling that we drink in America the most? Um, well, um, Riesling's a great example because it because it can run from you know quite sweet to very very dry, um, and that's one of the reasons I love it so much because it's, you know it's like a chameleon. Um, and uh, I just I just feel like um, you know a lot of a lot of the sweetness can balance out acidity. It can balance out um, you know you know tannins kind of are perceived as dry. Um, sweetness kind of helps you know balance that. You know um, oak and fruit are kind of perceived as sweet, um, but not necessarily sweet, sugar sweet. Right. But you know like you know when I sell it to a table, you know I say you know when somebody asks for a sweet red wine. smell watermelon, so if something smells like watermelon, you think it's sweet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, um, I, I just kind of wanted to throw out that one of my favorite, I, I love um, Alsatian wines that have a little sugar on them because again, very high acid. Yes. Uh, Alsatian Pinot Gris or Gewurz or something. It's just absolutely. coating. It's not serving, you know? Yeah. So, so um, just kind of while we're on the subject, I'm sure we'll do something more with dessert wines later, but with actual uh, sweet wines or wines uh, as far as pairing goes, if you, what, what does it give you in the pairing choices if you have a little more perceptible sugar on a wine? Um, I like to pair those things, um, of course, with spicy food, um, you know, Thai, Indian, um, you know, Asian, things like that, um, or just really anything with a kick. Um, it it kind of helps counterbalance that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily temper it, it's just really a nice marriage together. Um, I also like to see, you know, um, vinaigrettes and things with Acidity, you know, um, kind of mellowed out by, by a, little, a little sweetness, you know, and, and a lot of times it's just really refreshing to have something sweet and not both dry, you know, I mean, like it, it feels more friendly on your palate, you know, um, you know, humans by nature are, you know, kind of drawn to sweet and sugar, you know, so. Well, awesome, well, that's very helpful. Well, um, I think we're, anything else with sweetness before we move on? <laughs> well, um, I just wanted to also take a moment to let you say a couple of words about Gervais and Vine in case somebody hasn't been here before and what you guys are doing different. I ate here for the first time two weeks ago, and I was amazed. Everything was yeah. phenomenal, service food and all that. But you want to say anything about it? I mean, that's really what we're going for. Uh, when, when, when Christian opened this place years ago, I mean, he started something revolutionary in Colombia, and it was like the hot spot for a long time. And it kind of got away from that for a little while, and now I've, you know, my partners and I really want to bring it back, and then some. Um, you know, two of my partners are exceptional chefs. Um, they've worked in the best restaurants around Columbia and, you know, and beyond. Um, and so the, the ideas that they're coming up with and the food that they're putting out right now is, is top notch. And, and we're going to continue to do that and continue with the creativity. I mean, there are a lot of things that people have loved about Gervais and Vine over the years. Um, you know, a lot of favorites here, you know, even a lot of the favorite staff, and we're keeping those things because, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Love you know, it. we're just doing things better. We're, we're doing things properly the way they should be done, the way, you know, we're putting a lot, a lot of care and a lot of time and effort into, you know, into making this one of the best restaurants in Columbia, again, um, you know, with the, 
crushed, but, um, but you know, but between the three of us, bouncing ideas off of each other and keeping things like, you know, we're, you know, we, we all like to go out to eat, we like to have the best experiences right. here, you know, our favorite restaurants to go to are, you know, the top in Columbia, and, right. you know, we've got a lot of support from, from a lot of the other, you know, small restaurant owners around here, you know, so I, you know, I wouldn't be where I am without Ricky Mollinan and, you know, and Kristen is a huge supporter, and, and you know, we just, you know, we, we owe a lot of, a lot of our community thanks, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't just take a village to raise a child, but it takes a village to raise a restaurant, I suppose. <laughs> well, y'all are raising a great one. We're continuing it. Um, so that's your and Vine, um, and this is Laurel Jeffrey, so she's here all of the time. I would love to tell you about her whole wine list whenever you come in for yes. recommendations. Uh, but otherwise, thanks, Laurel. I appreciate it. That's great. All right, we are back in the car. This is going to be our final segment. We have run around a lot today, so we haven't got to turn on the camera quite so much. Um, but like I said when we left the last segment, I want to talk about the Purple Cowboy. What is the Purple Cowboy? The Purple Cowboy is an important focus for Vintage Wine Estate, but it has such great meaning. Terry Wheatley, our focus winemaking founder of Purple Cowboy and creator of the brand. Um, she's a powerhouse, is a female developing labels that make sense for overall the wine community and has such a philanthropic focus. And Purple Cowboy was her original way to express focus on a great charity that she started, um, Tough Enough to Wear Pink. She's a breast cancer survivor and she wanted to give back and when she focused on how could I do this properly and in the best format, tough enough to wear pink was the answer. So this is a nonprofit charity, which is amazing. Not all charities are structured in that fashion. Right. Tough enough to wear pink. It's been around, I think this is now the 15th year, raising over $38 million for a cure for breast cancer. The wine itself is wonderfully balanced, easy drinking red blend and Cabernet from Paso Robles. It tastes amazing, it's affordably priced, and the proceeds from Paso Robles focused uh, Purple Cowboy all go to Tough Enough to Wear Pink. September and October is when we do a drive every year. Mm -hmm. We hope you'll be able to find it easily in your marketplace or request it, your favorite retailer, and enjoy a glass of it at a restaurant. Did you say where the name Purple Cowboy comes from? So Purple Cowboy is a reference to the original winemaking um, pioneers within Paso. Um, this was a newer area for exploration. You had great ripening of red varietals and when those cowboys would enjoy a little bit too much of their wares, their mouth would turn purple and they were dubbed the purple cowboys. <laughs> well, that's awesome and I love that you said it, but just to be clear, like all of the money goes to it. There's so many different um, charity this or that things where all the profit the from profit the winery does, right, exactly um, goes towards from purple cowboy brand goes to it's tough enough to wear pink yeah like and that. of course pink being the color for breast cancer awareness is the reference for the charity but the wine as you mentioned purple cowboy is the name because of the um, comic relief and the focus of exactly why um, those gentlemen and their interest in Paso Robles Red was so strong and intense and it produces memorable wines for an affordable price. I love it. Well, thank you for all your time talking about all the wines today. You're welcome. Uh, and for letting me taste all of them. They're all delicious. Um, finally, so this is kind of a weird one, and every time I ask somebody, they don't actually 
rarely have a good answer for it, but I, I don't know. I like to ask new ways. So there's, you know, you, you feel like every you know, show or whatever, you know, you should have one consistent question that you always ask. And most of the ones I did when I started out all bombed and didn't have a great answer. Um, so the one that I now ask is give me an unpopular opinion. I'll give you an example. I just do not get the Baby Yoda love. Like, I know everybody likes Baby Yoda, and it, but I just don't. I mean, I like real Yoda, obviously, because who doesn't, you know, but I don't, I don't, I don't get, it doesn't even talk, it can't hold a lightsaber, whatever. So, do you have an unpopular opinion that you're okay revealing to my huge viewership of 18 to 20, depending on the week? Yes, um, my unpopular opinion is the conversion of, um, restaurant and bar accounts for good reason, um, for environmental reasons, but to um, using paper straws. I know it's oh. very popular for people to move to paper straws. They're economical. They are recyclable and all those great things. And I'm a proponent of environmental causes, but the paper straw disintegrates, um, <laughs> especially if you're drinking anything that lasts for more than, let's say, 10 minutes of consumption. I think it's awful and stupid, and it annoys me, and it's definitely my unpopular opinion. There are corn straws, which uh -huh. my um, local smoothie producer, Bay Naturals in Myrtle Beach uses, which are as good as plastic straws, and I am a proponent of the corn straw if we need to choose I haven't heard to switch. Straw. You know what I've heard... Um, but I haven't tried it, but I, I think there's pasta, uh, uh, pasta straws now. Yes, I've heard. That, that is supposed to be just as good for everybody. Yes. But. And portable straws, I don't think reasonably in Mandy B. Silver's life will be kept clean enough to take from location to location. So I am in favor so of corn straws. reusable, definitely not. Corn straws is an interesting idea. But paper straws are a big, huge no. Is there I don't anything like them. you can't make out of corn? That's just crazy. You yeah. can feel your engine and you can drink your sodas all in one. Yes. Well, that's a great unpopular opinion. I like that. Mm, thank all right. you. Well, thank you for being on Ride Between the Wines and Mandy Silver. And try all of these amazing wines we've talked about today. And go back and listen to the podcasts with um, Danny Gordon from Tamarack, Sean Roney from uh, Sabotage, and Patricio Guggenheim from Guggenheim. Those are all wonderful podcasts as well. Go Vintage Wine Estates. Love it. Well, that's all, folks. Thanks so much for checking in. Uh, please tune back next week when we're with Ian Rabowski of Jean-Luc Colombo in France. Until then, chin-chin. <laughs>